This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Brian and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Sunday, January 8th, 2017. And we want we just want to say happy birthday to Roy Batty. That's right, today is the birthday of replicant Roy Batty. So happy birthday wherever you are, sir. Um how was your week, Brian? My week was awesome. So last time I was on here, I was talking about launching one book, Secret Kings. And so now this week, along with uh, my editors, Jason Rennie and Ben Zvitsky, we launched Forbidden Thoughts, a sci-fi anthology, which uh, was initially conceived as sort of a 2017 answer to Carl Nelson's Dangerous Visions, only with the politics, um, shall we say, reversed from the dominant ideology of today's New York publishing. And it's doing pretty good on Amazon, I hear. It's doing phenomenal. It um, rose largely with the help of the prominent forward by Milo Yiannopoulos, who also has a best-selling book out now. But uh, yeah, rose to number one in all of sci-fi on Amazon. Um, it was like up in the 300s when it peaked. So among other things, it beat um, an anthology with John Scalzi in it. It uh, beat Ted Chang's uh, The Story of Your Life, which the movie The Arrival is based on. And it beat the novelization of Rogue One for a while. So not bad. Excellent. Well, um, unfortunately for all the authors involved, and this is not an insult in any way, or not meant as an insult, I'm not going to be able to read it for some time because I am literally 800 books behind my reading list. And um, and the reading list just keeps on getting longer. I'm adding more books to it faster than I can read them. So That is normal. Don't, don't feel bad. Um, in fact, I'm trying to think. The I just recently completed the entire Lensman series, and I started issue four of Kursova magazine. Um, and issue four of Kursova has been phenomenal so far. I've enjoyed uh, all the stories. I think uh, P. Alexander, who we had here on the show as a guest, mm -hmm. has is really growing as an editor, and I hope that uh, he's got pretty much all of 2017 mapped out. I'm hoping that uh, he can continue strong in 2018 and continue building his magazine's readership base. It is uh, uh, an excellent magazine, very entertaining. Most of your most of your mainstream fantasy and science fiction magazines now focus on being like socially relevant or whatever. They don't focus on the audience. And Kursova uh, Magazine focuses 100% on the audience. They focus on entertaining the audience. And it doesn't mean there's nothing but entertainment. It doesn't mean there's nothing but an action adventure. And it doesn't mean you can't have interesting uh, and involving and, you know, even insightful stuff in the story. But if all you're trying to do is to be literary, be socially significant, or be subversive, you're going to be missing 
all of the stuff that uh, makes a magazine worth reading. You're going to be generally producing pretty boring stuff. And so um, they Kursova focus on excitement and adventure. They focus on stories that are imaginative, colorful, and engaging, and they draw the audience in. And it is a completely different experience than reading uh, even most anthologies I've picked up in a, for a long, long time. Uh, this is absolutely great stuff. I, I thoroughly recommend it to anybody listening. Excellent. Yeah, they're, they're doing good work. One of the other things... Um, so one of the other things I did this week is I watched Man in the High Castle Season 2 on Amazon. And we uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. Because John, our missing co-host, by the way, John isn't here today. He is attending to a once-in-a-year uh, event. It is NFL playoffs just began today. So he is uh, diving deep into one of his other passions. So we wish him and his team luck in the playoffs. One of the things that he did last week that he mentioned on the show is that he watched the first two episodes of Man in the High Castle. And he stopped at the end of the second episode because it was boring. So I went this week, and I thought I'd have to wait a few more weeks until they actually got the whole series out. But uh, someone tweeted me and said, yes, the whole series is out right now. And so that's what I, I spent eight hours uh, this week going uh, and watching all of, uh, oh no, it was 10 hours, because there's 10 episodes, what, 10 hours this week, watching the second season of Man in the High Castle, just so I could come on the show and discuss it with everybody. So here's my verdict. I could easily see why John quit listening after episode number two, because episode one and two were so boring that I wanted to quit watching. I just didn't because I was going to review it on the show. And in the making of featurettes that they also have available online, the guy says, well, the first two episodes are us just kind of maneuvering the characters in place, and episode three is where it really gets going. That's a paraphrase. That's not an exact quote. Um, any you can tell, it's not very interesting stuff. Um so I can absolutely see why he quit watching at the end of the second episode. The question is, are the other eight episodes worth the time investment? And my answer would be no. Not unless you absolutely have to review the show for your own podcast. It is not something that's generally worth spending 10 hours, investing 10 hours on. Here's the thing. The show is precisely plotted. And in the last episode, all of the different feds, I was going to say tightly plotted, but tightly plotted kind of implies quick moving. And this show is the antithesis of quick moving. It's very, very slow moving. But it is not tightly plotted. It is precisely plotted. That is, the people making these 10 episodes knew exactly where they were going from the very first episode, and all of the meandering storylines actually come together in the last episode and make sense. It's not a big disaster that they pulled out of their rear. Everything makes sense. Everything fits together, and how the different characters in disparate parts of the globe, uh, how they're 
the events surrounding them, the things they do come together all make sense in the end. It's just it takes too long to get there, and it's boring. And it also uh, brings up a new theory of mine about speculative fiction, especially uh, fantasy and science fiction. But before I get to that, I'm going to pause for a second and see if Brian has any questions so far. Well, thanks. And I think you made a really important distinction there between precise plotting and fast pacing. Because what you'll find is when a reader or a viewer complains that something is slower plotting or poorly paced, that generally doesn't have anything to do with how quickly the story's thrown at you, how quickly the plot moves, is usually a sign that insufficient dramatic tension has been established to draw the viewer or reader along. So you're going to have something that's just meticulously plotted out, but if we don't care, it's going to feel like it drags. And that's the problem is it's just really hard to care about most of these characters. Most of them aren't very interesting. Most of them are kind of bland and most of them are bland and reactive. Um, and especially there's a character called Joe Blake, who is, is the Nazi. Um, it was a Nazi agent, a young gentleman. Um, and he just seems to change based on what the writers need to have happen in the plot. And mm. there is a lot of effort made to make his character explicable so that you understand why he changes. It's not just like they slap it together, but at the same time, they don't, it doesn't really feel like he has a consistent characterization. It's kind of boring because you don't care about it. So, yeah. Um, here is my term. Um, a man in the high castle does not know what its core interest is. I want to define this. I'm not sure it's the best term to use. It's just the one that I thought of. There is, and this is an example I thought up. Suppose you have a universe in which high-flying warriors do battle with martial arts and magical swords that they have inherited from their family that are infused with the spirits of their ancestors. And you have, theoretically, massive battles in which these flying swordsmen are the leaders, they're the heroes, they're the most... Um, the baddest asses on the entire battlefield. They can take on any dozen other warriors and defeat them without even thinking twice. They leap through the air. They, you know, throw big boulders around. They're absolutely magnificently impressive. And so you set up this world where all these warriors are, and then the entirety of your movie, like 95% of your movie is spent with the main character, who is one of these kick-ass warriors, one of the baddest mothers on the battlefield, teaching his daughter how to draw characters correctly with calligraphy. Hmm. Now, if you start out a movie, and the first 20 minutes of the movie are this badass, high-flying martial arts warfare, and then the next two hours of the movie 
are two characters in a single room talking to each other while they draw calligraphy, your audience is going to feel disjointed. Especially, and this is the thing, this is the core, the interest core of that introduction, of that 20 minutes of high-flying battle, that's what your audience is expecting. That's what they want. And so if you completely shift to something else, they're going to be bored. And that's because that's not what they're interested in. There could be room for a movie about a father and a daughter, and the father's a warrior, and he's never really connected with his daughter. And this particular calligraphy example is a chance for him to connect with her and they can talk about their different lives and then you know it's a movie so you might do uh, vignettes flashbacks to what they're talking about and the father and the daughter reconnect that could be a great and moving drama but if the audience is sold on high-flying martial arts action that's what they're interested in and if you spend two hours on this old man teaching calligraphy to his daughter you're just going to bore the hell out of them because that's not what they're there for. That's not their core interest in the fictional piece. So as a writer, as a director, um, you have to identify what it is your audience is really interested in, what it is they're really going to care about, what it is they came to your work to experience to be involved in you have to identify that you have to know that and then you have to either deliver that to your audience or go back and understand where did i go wrong in setting up my audience expectations why do they expect a tale of war between vampires and werewolves when i'm really wanting to talk about uh computer programmers in silicon valley where did i make a mistake as a writer or a director setting up expectations that go one way but actually uh the entire movie is about something else either you have to match those expectations or you have to figure out where you pointed the audience wrong and that's what Man in the High Castle is missing. It doesn't understand. The people who are making the show don't understand what the audience really wants in this setup. And for those of you that don't know, and this is spoilers for the TV show, uh, apparently it doesn't have much to do with the book, so it's not spoilers for the book. Um, Perils of the, of the TV show... It is a world in which Nazi Germany has conquered the eastern half of the U.S. The Japanese have conquered the western half of the U.S. And between them is this vast neutral territory. And people are capable of psychically traveling from this universe to other alternate timelines or traveling from other alternate timelines to this universe. And the climax of the first season was one of the primary characters traveling into what appears to be our world, circa 1963. Um, it, it's during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's the setup. Nazis run America, you know, people do the Nazi salute, they pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler, the Japanese are brutal racists, and the Nazis are brutal racists, but people can psychically travel from 
this Nazi fascist dominated world to our world and can travel from our world to a Nazi dominated world. So if that's what your setup is, as the producers, as the writers, as the directors, you have to identify, okay, what is it that the audience is going to want? What is it that the audience is going to expect? What is their core interest in this show? And the entire plot line of this season, all 10 episodes, is not it. That They just don't even come close to what I think the audience would really like. Um, I'm going to pause for a bit. Uh, Brian is is heavily involved in the chat, so I'm going to pause for a second and I, I, I allow him to ask questions or or throw anything from the chat that makes uh, makes sense. Okay. So yes, from the chat, uh, there seems to be a consensus that writers should avoid too long a lined up. No, you should get to uh, it's called like the the day that's different or the moment that's different. In your characters' lives, and you should start as close to that as possible. Um, and you should also manage your audience expectations. Let me ask you a question, though. Mm -hmm. Knowing that setup, this is a world where Nazis dominate half the U.S., Japanese dominate half the other U.S., but it's possible to just purely through mental effort travel from that world to our world and travel from our world to that world. What would you, as a member of the audience, be looking forward to that you think would make the most interesting show? Invasion of our world by their world? That would be one of them. Easy, right? Or perhaps these resistance members going to our world and setting it up to where we can invade them and liberate this alternate United States from the Nazis. So, I would do that in like part two, but yeah, both, both are good. Both of those are fine because if you can travel back and forth between these two worlds, all of a sudden that becomes the most interesting concept in the show. That becomes the most compelling concept in the show. And what we want to see is how that matters. How does that matter? What does it do? What does it allow characters to do? What are the ramifications of it? And here's the biggest crime. It barely enters into the season. It barely matters only a little bit and only by accident. It is almost totally irrelevant. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a missed opportunity right there. So that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't understand what its core interest is. It doesn't understand what the audience is really going to be going, oh, yeah, let's see this. Um, you know, a, some Nazis discovering that they can move between worlds and they go to all these other worlds and in every other world, they've lost World War II and then making plans to invade other worlds. That would be awesome. I, I got to give a plug here. It's, that idea is very similar to uh, John C. Wright's story from Forbidden Thoughts, but he basically does it with um, SJWs instead of Nazis. Um, so yeah, that, that's why it was boring, is the most interesting idea in the entire show they throw out, for the most part, it, it barely has any, any overall effect on the series. Yeah, like and, I said, failure to set up audience expectations and manage them right. 
or even even just recognize as a creative person which of all the ideas you've got in the mix is the most interesting that the audience is going to want to see most developed. We what shall is call it George Lucas syndrome. Sorry. It's what? We shall call it George Lucas syndrome. So I think if I could uh, – we talked about Passengers last week. Um, I gave it a fairly good review. Um, Brian saw Passengers this week, but I want to mm -hmm. posit a theory to you. This this concept of core interest, identifying what your audience will be most interested in, I think that where – and I'm not going to say they did it wrong, and I'm not going to say they did it badly, but I think where Passengers is muddled – and where the audience is going to have trouble, where it's not going to be as popular because it has two core interests going on at the same time. And it kind of tries to have it both ways. And either the audience is going to be interested in the romance or they're going to be interested in this crisis on a starship, this generation ship that all of a sudden has a crisis and they have to, two unlikely individuals have to work together to save the ship. Either. It has two core interests, I think, and that's going to try to draw the audience's attention into two different directions, and uh, and that makes it kind of muddled. I think what it would have made for a more satisfying movie for most people is if they had kept the focus on the starship that's failing and all the parts that are falling apart and all of that stuff, and then... Um, the romance is just a tiny subplot that takes up some of the movie, but not nearly as much as it does now. Because there's plenty of room to have subplots that diverge from the core interest. But I think that the most compelling thing in that movie was the, the crisis. And these two people who are not trained, who are not educated, working together to try and save you know, 7,500 other lives... I think that if they had focused on that aspect, it would have been a had a clearer through line, and I think it would have been more successful as a movie that the audience would have found it more satisfying. Um, but I'm going to put that that that's that's just the transition into Passengers, and I'm going to stop talking and let Brian uh, give us his review of Passengers. Hey, thanks. Good points. Yes, I saw it based on the strength of Daddy Warpig's review. I was not sorry that I did. Highly entertaining. It's uh, more toward the hard SF end of the spectrum. It's not Martian diamond hard, but it, it is about people trying to solve problems in space that in a life and death situation. And yeah, they did seem to be trying uh, to have their cake and eat it too, as far as audience appeal. You know, we're getting a, a appeal to the female demographic or the male demographic. And they, they didn't entirely pull it off, but I like genre bashing as much as the next guy. I appreciate the effort. It, it is better to attempt something ambitious and fail than it just played safe. My one major complaint is, okay, well, we got to see a lot of Chris Pratt's butt. Okay, spoiler alert. <laughs> but, you know, it's fine. It was tasteful. But we're naked. It was tasteful. But, come on, we need some you know, reciprocity here. <laughs> There was a perfect chance to show Jennifer Lawrence's butt and they cut away. And that is not fair. I don't know if she charges too much, but honestly, if you have an internet connection that is easily available, so I don't see what her deal is. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that that was the major problem with the movie, and it's a good movie. I really enjoyed it. It's a worthwhile movie. Uh, you, if you like science fiction, you should go see it because they do a lot of good things in science fiction. We talked about it last week, so you can go listen to last week's show and get the full <laughs> review. It's oh, just sure. um, go ahead. It's just that they did try to mix this crisis with the romance, and it didn't quite work out as much as they wanted to. Right, um, and listener uh, Jared Burrell agrees with you. And as a matter of fact, it is uh, fortuitous that he showed up now because he had asked me a question earlier. Uh, would you like to get to that? Yeah, we're, that was that was all the that was all the points I had to make about passengers, men in the high castle. Uh, so yeah, we're clear. Okay, so welcome, Jared. And earlier on Twitter, Jared brought a problem he's having with his homebrew RPG system to my attention. So, he requests, okay, why is constructing cosmology important in a speculative fiction project? And what happens if you don't? Because his homebrew RPG started running into limitations because it has no cosmology. He's having difficulty conceptualizing the next step. Um, let me, you're going to have a different answer to this. So let me give a, a quick um, minority opinion. If it depends on the focus and the scope of your campaign world, if your campaign world doesn't focus on cosmological issues, it isn't necessarily necessary. And yes, I, I, I said that deliberately. It isn't necessarily necessary to have a coherent or planned out cosmology from the beginning. Um, but that's just general advice for people who are building their own game world. It isn't necessarily necessary for you to have an overarching cosmology built from the beginning. As a general, as general advice, that's how I would put it. I myself, when I was building the last game world I built, I simply couldn't get it going until I absolutely had um, my major, huge, massive picture cosmology in place. Until I absolutely knew what that was, then I could finally start getting down to the nitty-gritty details of the world. So even though that's general advice that I would give, it didn't hold for me just because of who I am and how I uh, did my world building. And I think that's a sound answer. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this to Gigab is because you honestly have way more experience at uh, building homebrew RPG worlds than I do. <laughs> I mean, seriously, folks, he, he knows his stuff. So I appreciate that. Uh, in terms of general fiction, yeah, it also depends. It depends on the scope of the story. Okay, so... If you've got a story that involves the gods and, and machinations to like kill or court them, or you're doing some Lovecraftian horror or something, you're probably going to need to establish a baseline. You're, you're going to need at least enough of a framework that from a distance, it'll hold up. Okay, so it depends on how much you, you touch on it. Now, I will say the only fantasy sci-fi that I've I've done my, my soul cycle 
I started with the cosmology. So it's, it's integral to it. I delve into it a lot because that's really the reason for writing it. I really wanted to explore some of the inconsistencies in Manichaeanism, you know, black, black and white morality. So it's foundational to that. But at the same time, in, in pure sci-fi, pretty much none of my pure sci-fi short stories really touch on that. So yeah, I'll like what Daddy Warpig said. It depends on what do you think your audience is interested in. It depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go with the scope of your story. But since you are running into problems taking the next step and conceptualizing it, yeah, I would advise you to take a step all the way back and ask yourself some questions about the fundamental natural laws of the use, uh, the rules of the universe and how everything got there. Um, specifically, the advice that I read, uh, and I wish I could remember who said it, uh, it might have been the Dungeon Craft column in uh, Dragon Magazine, um, which is all about building campaign worlds. What they said was, if you're creating a homebrew campaign world, it's not something that's going to be published commercially, all you have to do is stay one step ahead of the players. So if they are concentrating on one dungeon in one part of the planet with a little town nearby, that's all you really have to create. You don't have to detail everything else or an entire history of the world for 5,000 years. And so the time to start worrying about cosmology is the, and I'm going to assume D&D for just half a set. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this general advice will transfer to any other system you're using. The time to start worrying about big issue cosmology uh, for a homebrew campaign is the level right before they get plane shift or the level right before they get contact outer plane or whatever. In other words, the level right before it really actually begins to matter, you should have those answers set up so that when they do hit that level and they do get access to those spells or magic items or, or summoning whatever creatures from other planes, that you have the at least the, you know, a vague idea of how it fits together so that you're ready to roll. Um, and my advice for a homebrew campaign is to steal liberally from anything that inspires you. If uh, you're not running D&D, but you think that the great hot, great wheel outer planes are awesome, then just steal the heck right out of it and use it. Um, if you like Diablo and you want to steal how Diablo does its heaven and hell and the battleground between them, then steal the hell out of it. Um, on the other hand, if you want to do something original, you can, but there is nothing wrong with stealing. Here, here. Mature artists steal. Um, so now Jared is in the... Um, he's in the chat. Is there any uh, any other specific questions you have or any specific, like what kind of problems is it causing? Um, in are the players expecting to be able to plane travel to outer planes? Are they expecting to be able to, um, if we knew something about what kinds of problems it's causing, we could maybe give some more specific examples. Um, and let me switch gears for a second and talk about a commercial game. If you're talking about a commercial game that you're building to sell, 
you should focus on issues of cosmology if they actually matter in the game. If they don't matter in the game, if you're producing a game that's like Fayford and the Green Mouser or uh, like, um, you know, you're focusing on street-level gangs, even if it's in an epic fantasy world, if you're like a D&D &D world and you're focusing on street-level gangs, it doesn't necessarily matter what your outer plane or setup is because nobody cares. It's not going to enter into the campaign. It's not going to impact the campaign. And so nobody cares. I mean, let's say you're going with a Conan setup where um, all of the magicians are evil bastards, where they're just vile people. It's not going to matter what the outer planes are like because your players are never going to go there. And the assumption really, especially in a Conan world, is it's kind of Lovecrafty and it's, it's not really knowable. Um, the outer... Uh, the outer planes or the extra planar setup, astral planes, whatever, it's not really knowable in a Lovecraftian metaphysics. And so it doesn't really matter what they are. The players are never going to get those answers anyway. And they should be getting contradictory answers. It, somebody should come to them and say with absolute certainty, it's X and Y and Z. And so that's what they believe. And then two or three adventures later, they find out, oh, no, it's Q and P and R. And that guy was almost totally wrong, except this tiny little bit of what he said was right. If you're in a Lovecraftian universe, you don't want a coherent cosmology because the players should never be certain of what the ultimate setup of the universe is. So, you know, any advice on building cosmology for role-playing games specifically is know what it is you're trying to do and build exactly what you need if you're trying to do it. Um, Shadowrun is a great example. They knew what they were trying to do. They needed the astral plane right from the go because the from the very first moment you start playing, if you have a shaman or a hermetic magician, they can actually project. So you need to know what the astral plane is. You need to know how it interacts with the material plane. You need to know whether or not people can read text from the astral plane, how spells from the astral plane transfer over, how they ground out into the material world. All of those answers had to be there because from the very first second of play, it's possible for player characters to start astrally projecting. But, you know, a lot of other games don't necessarily need all those questions coherently, consistently answered right now. So, okay, we have... Uh couple comments from Jared. So one, he opines that a purely materialistic worldview is hard in fantasy. And he's making a game system and aiming for ripple effects. So a faction or players can set things in motion that pay off months later. Um. Without getting more specific, I don't know that I don't know that I have any more other advice about building cosmology. I love building cosmology. Building cosmology is cool, um, and it depends on what kind of it all depends on what kind of game world you're going for. Um, so, yeah, I, I could maybe give a more specific answer if I had a more specific like what kind of problems it was causing, but that's the best answer I can come up with. Do you have any other? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's a mechanical question. So figure out what you want to do 
and then just work backwards and try to anticipate how players could potentially throw a wrench into it. Or, you know, maybe you, you want them to exploit it in interesting ways. Um, okay, so Jared's question is this. It seems planes slash gods are where people start. In a D&D game in which you have clerics, of, it is assumed you have a pagan um, or pseudo-pagan uh, pantheon of gods. Yeah, and, and especially where you have cleric player characters, if clerics are going to be player characters and people can play them right from the start, you need at least a vague notion of what gods there are or what religious systems there are right from the start. Um, and so you have to have those well enough defined. And then coincident with that, uh, not just deities, but uh, it, this is something that gets glossed over by a lot of people who make D&D style games. Um, some notion of religion and religious hierarchy and how that all works uh, would also be good to have, but it isn't necessarily a lot of people just skip it because it doesn't really matter for an adventuring cleric, for, for a typical D&D style cleric. And people start there because you can play clerics right out of the gate, they have miracles right out of the gate, and you need to know what god they worship, what their miracles are, what the limitations on that are. In third edition, you uh, you needed to know what um, spheres they could pick. Um, they had those, you know, list of spells. And so, yes, people start there, especially in D&D, because the cleric is a standard class, and somebody could be playing that right from the word go, and so you needed to know that right from the word go. Uh, and that also, religions, religious organizations have a big impact on society. And so that's just part of world building, is to have an idea of how that impacts the rest of society. So that's where cosmology kind of shades over into, into you know, day-to-day -day world building, is you need to know, okay, is this a... Is this a monotheistic world where there's one God and he is worshipped by pretty much everyone, but each different uh, each different saint has his own different order of clerics? And so, you know, you have a saint of travel, so they can get the travel sphere and you know the protection sphere. You have a you have a patron saint of warriors, and so that cleric can get you know these two other spheres. That uh, you just you have to have some idea of what you're doing with that because that will have a big effect or should have a big effect on your campaign world. Okay. So he asks, how do I figure all this stuff out and still make the world mysterious? Well, I'd say that's up to you as the GM, eh? You're the one who parcels out information. It it depends on what you want it want to be mysterious. Um it is, while not typical for a D&D style um, fantasy world, uh, depending on what you want to go with, as far as gods and cosmology, for example, let's take Dragonlance. When you start off with the Dragonlance campaign, there's a ton of gods around, but all of them are fake. None of them are real, because the real gods have, have left the world. And so... Um, knowledge of the true gods was restricted to like one person um and i don't even know if they were involved in the very first module i don't remember um mystery 
is just not telling the player stuff or telling them stuff that is only half true. And depending on what your players are into, they may not even care about the answers to cosmological questions. Yeah, nine times out of ten, players aren't thinking about your world. They're thinking about their characters. Because again, the point of role-playing game is you can be the hero of your own story. You know, you, you can make anyone and be anyone. So it's actually quite easy in my experience to provide mystery because unless you really hammer something home and make it really, really explicit, uh, your players will most likely miss it if you deliver it with enough subtlety. Uh, lie to them. That's something that GMs some really have a hard problem with. Don't like in the in the as a GM to the player. Typically, you don't lie to the player, but as an NPC or as a book they find, you can lie all you want. Yeah, and that's a great tool as an NPC that says absolutely this is the way it is, and it just absolutely is not that way, or it's only halfway that way, or or whatever. Um, Yeah, that 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 the mystery uh, is just that the players don't know something. So, um, give them false information and or um, most players aren't going to ask about that kind of thing anyway. Yeah, um, they're really not. So, Makes I don't know. <laughs> do you have any other do you have any other comments on that ish on that? Oh, several, but I don't want to keep us all night. And we, we've given uh, Jared a lot to digest already. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, he, he thanks us. Thank you for listening. You're welcome. Uh, we can talk about it on another show, maybe, if uh, if, he, if he has some more specific questions or, or he just wants us to go back and explain something. Yeah, and I think it would help to get Dornall's uh, input on this. So yeah, we, right. can stick a, we can stick a pin in that for now. Um, so my recommendations are really, unless you're unusually committed to it, skip Men in the High Castle. Um, go see Passengers. It's a it's a good movie. Um, that that is a little bit too am, is a little bit too ambitious, but still is quite a good movie. Um, and. There is a sharp dividing line between making something professionally and making something for your home campaign. And don't worry if the stuff you make for your home campaign, if you think it doesn't measure up to, you know, the campaign world design in Legend of the Five Rings or Shadowrun or whatever, because frankly, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's not where the fun in your game is really going to be had. On the other hand, if some issue that you haven't thought about exactly or thought about in detail so far is actually causing problems well then obviously it's time to sit down and thrash it out um and the first thing you should decide is what effect am i going for as game master or in your role as a world designer what is it that i'm trying to stress what is it i'm trying to present how is it that i want this world to be interpreted and a lot of times that can be fixed or at least clarified by going back to whatever sources are your inspiration. Are you drawing inspiration from Favorite and the Great Mouse? Or are you drawing inspiration from um, 
J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or are you drawing inspiration maybe from Smith of Watton Major, a very minor J.R.R. Tolkien story with a quite different cosmology, quite different uh, setup than Lord of the Rings. If you're stuck and you don't know where to go, it might be worthwhile to take a step back and go back to your inspiration and see if that gets the juices flowing, see if that helps you orient yourself uh, to at least realize once again what it is you're actually trying to do so that now that you know specifically what effect you're trying to achieve, you can aim for that effect instead of just thrashing around and trying to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So well said. Oh, this one I'd also like to give a shout out to the Dark Soul Artist Scholarship. Ben Rodriguez in the chat has requested. Sounds like a worthy cause. Okay. Well, um thanks for tuning in, folks. Um this has been Geek Gab for Sunday, January 8th, 2017. Just a quick reminder, you can listen to the show on youtube.com slash geekgab about once a week. We do a live show. You can come in and jump in the chat. We've had a very, very busy chat today. It's been very uh, uh, very gratifying. Uh, a lot of really great points that, that don't necessarily get discussed on the air, and so it's worthwhile to come and hang out on YouTube when we do one of these shows to be involved in the chat. Um, or if you want, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Just do a search for Geek Gab. You can, uh, or there's a link to that in the description underneath this video. You can also... Uh, Subscribe to us on SoundCloud for the podcast or on the Google Play Store. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We uh, hope we've entertained you. We hope we've informed you. And by the way, if you do have questions that you want us to cover on the show, please hit us up, uh, any of us up on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, Gab, wherever, and email. And we will try to get to those. Our various Twitter accounts are in the description underneath the video. We, uh, me and Brian, are signing off for today. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, folks. We we're leaving, but don't worry, we will be back.